Yeah, well, good evening. It's uh, such a delight being with you guys again. Um, I'm actually more of an honorary 4PMer at the moment. So I thought there'd be a few cheers after that. I was like, just definitely si silence. Uh, we spent a month at 4PM uh, just helping out when Mac was in sabbatical. So my wife, Eddie, and I, we, um, we're more roamers, so we don't really have a home. We're just kind of a rolling stone. We just go where we, where we needed, although we're based in Wellington. And uh, we were just helping out in 4 p.m. in Stelly's for a month. It was just great just getting to know some of the comms, just being in the church, in the congregation with the guys. Don't tell them this, but you guys are awesome. Okay. <laughs> but uh, it was really cool being with them and just being with Stellenbosch. Um, I often said before we would probably move here in a heartbeat, but, um, you know, we, we're not for... But anyway, um, and what I want to do this evening, I just off the back of... Um, yeah, and James sharing, and just actually something that I've been carrying on my heart for a while is, you know, we often use Bible words, uh, you know, some of you have been Christians for quite a while, some of you have been saved for a short time, some of you are maybe looking in at the faith and you're seeking Christ, you're looking at what truth is, we're all on a journey somewhere, um, most of us on this race of faith, and we use Bible words, you know, we use a lot of words in our faith that we throw out, and we think we often know what those words mean, and it's quite cool to sometimes say those words, you know, when you're a Christian, words like sanctification, you know, and it's like, it just sounds cool, what does it actually mean, no one really knows, but hey, it just sounds cool, no, we know what it means, um, but often we throw out these big words, or even singing tonight, glory to the righteous one, or we want your righteousness, you're a righteous God, like, what does it mean? I mean, some of you have grown up with movies where um, the person, you know, how you, you know, wow, that was righteous, man, and... Um, you know, we use it in a different context, and unfortunately, one of the words that get used today and has been changed, unfortunately, not by the world, but by the church, and there's false teachings even around it, or incomplete teachings, and the word is repentance, repentance. And so this evening, I actually want to look at what is repentance, and it's a word that we use, we throw it out, but what does it actually mean? And so in some ways, what I want to do uh, with you this evening is I want, it's quite a basic word, uh, but it's something that's really important because the, the word repentance has been watered down, has been changed. And in some churches today, the word repentance, as I look just now, doesn't actually mean what the Bible says it should mean. And it's important that we hold on to these words because they have meaning and they have power in Jesus and so, um, the word repentance, now it's interesting that throughout the Bible, and if we just look at the New Testament, that word repent gets mentioned various times. When Jesus was walking on the earth in his ministry, Jesus spoke about repentance. For example, he says in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. You look at Peter, one of the, the first apostles, the head of the early church, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You look at Paul, he uses that word as well. He says in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Then Jesus later on in Revelation, and here Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's appearing to John, telling him to write letters to the churches, and in the letters to Christians, he says to them, to a Christian church, he says to this church in Revelation 2.5, repent. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. So he warns them and he uses that word repent. 
So what does the word repent mean? And so I really want to do a bit of a teaching with you this evening. Is that okay? Um, That's kind of what I do. And so, yeah, I just play to my strength, you know. Um, And so what does the word repent mean? Now, it's interesting if you, uh, who was sharing, Ulrich was sharing earlier how he Googled something to get an answer. And interesting, if you Google or you look at especially the Oxford Dictionary, you look at what the world says about what the word repent means, this is what the Oxford Dictionary says about the word repent. Repent, to feel regret about what one has done or failed to do. To feel regret for what one has done or has failed to do. Let me ask you the question, do you think that's a good definition? Wow, you guys are smart. You are correct. That is not a good definition. That is a terrible definition. It's got nothing to do with the way the Bible would speak about repentance. But actually, if we're honest, and I know I have been like this at times in the past, where I thought that that's what repentance is. Like, you just feel bad enough about something. Actually, no, that's what we call remorse. You just feel bad about it. And um, when you've done something bad or wrong, when you know that you've missed the mark in some way. But what is biblical repentance? And biblical repentance, when Jesus said repent, when Peter says repent, when Paul says repent, when Jesus later again to the church says, I want you to repent, what does it mean? And essentially the word means to change your mind. The word is, so many of you know this, metanoia, to change your mind. In other words, to change your thinking. And after you've changed your thinking, if you've done so, the implication is you must change your action. So let me give you an illustration. Last Saturday, um, I was driving from Wellington. We were driving into Cape Town myself, my wife, Eddie, and my son, Dan, who's 16 now. He's pretty righteous at the moment. And um, so we're driving to Cape Town to go to visit a friend of ours, and we drove past Goodwood. Do you guys know Goodwood? Goodwood. You've got to say it with a, a bit of an accent. Goodwood. You gotta say it like that, right? And then near Milnerton, by the way, I, I used to work in Milnerton. You don't say Milnerton, you go Milliton. Okay? Anyway, if you're in the area and you say that, you get instant respect. Okay, so yeah, it's besides my point. So we're driving past Goodwood. We're going to Monte Vista. In Monte Vista, where we were going to this friend, as I'm dropping our son off. Now, this home I'd been to many times, but I'd been there in a long time. So as we're driving there, I'm convinced where the house is, and I'm driving in the direction of where I think the house is. Thank you. I've actually got another water someone gave me, but I'll take that one as well. Thank you. (laughs) Double portion, yeah. Um, So I'm driving in the direction, and I realize that I'm actually going in the wrong direction. So much so that I realize, like, this is not the street where Dan's friend um, Asher lives. It's not that street. And I thought it was, and I even drove the street twice. And I was getting quite frustrated I was, because, you know, I'm normally right. Okay, no. Uh, and I was driving up and down the street, and my wife says to me, in fact, my son says, Dad, we lost. You're going in the wrong direction. No, Dan, uh, this is the street. But the house wasn't on that street. So we're kind of arguing and squab- squabbling in the car, and eventually my wife gets the pin from Vanessa at at their house, and I have to, I'm driving in the wrong direction, and I have to have a change of mind. I realize that I'm going in the wrong direction. This is wrong and incorrect. And so my wife gives me the pin, and I humbly submitted to her at that moment where she gave me directions, and as a man, I received directions from my wife in the car. It's a miracle. And um, thank you, I'm modeling, you know, 
just Christ-like example here. And so I received directions from my wife, and I said, okay, babe, I will listen to you. Where, you, where are we going? And so driving with her in the car, she says, now I want you to go here, here, here. Now, if I knew I was going in the wrong direction, and I had the right directions, I had to turn around to go where we were going, but I didn't decide to turn. I said, you know, I know we're in the wrong direction, but I'm just going to keep going. What would you think about me? You would think, you fool. That is so foolish. You're so stubborn. Why would you do that? You're going to try and do this on your own. But rather, it's this idea of having to turn the car around and go in the direction where I should be going. And that's what repentance is. Repentance means that you know you're going in the wrong direction. You have a change of mind and you will turn, turn so much that you would be willing to turn from your incorrect direction to go in the right direction, to go towards truth. And you know, the world, unfortunately, and even for us as Christians, sometimes we can have a feeling that we know we're going in the wrong direction, but just because you know the right direction, that doesn't make, that's not repentance. Repentance is an actual turning. And as you'll see now, we see that God calls us to a lifestyle of repentance. This isn't something you do on the day you became a Christian and got born again. This is something that happens continually, that we're continually turning back to Christ turning away from our ways, turning away from selfishness, turning away from uh, pride, turning away from lies, and turning towards Christ. And that process is a lifestyle we keep repenting in many ways throughout our Christian life. And it's interesting, this, this word is used, and so I want to give you basically three principles that speak about repentance, where the Bible uh, describes the process of how we turn. How do we turn? And this is something, again, that we should embrace because it's at the heart of the gospel. The gospel is repent and believe. But I don't know about you, but I know that I don't just need the gospel the moment I get saved. The gospel is not the doorway into salvation. The gospel is the air we breathe in the kingdom. It's actually the pathway to our feet that you're walking on all the time because you need to continue to believe in Christ. I know that often I, I have to remind myself of the good news that, Lord, I know that I am not righteous. I'm not in right standing with you, but thank you today that you've given me Jesus, that you have paid the price, that it's actually his obedience. I am saved by good works, but his good works. And I remind myself of that. Lord, thank you, you saved me. I remind myself, I speak the gospel over myself, because I don't just did it the day I got saved. I do it all the time. I have to repent and believe. I've got to turn towards Jesus ongoingly. And we have this, this idea of repentance. So three things that I want to give you on repentance. These are the three. Con repentance involves conviction. Repentance involves confession. And repentance involves transformation. Those three things. And I want to give you them one by one. Repentance involves conviction. Now, we, again, it's another big Christian word that we throw around. Conviction. You know, hey, have you been convicted lately? Okay, what does that even mean? Well, I want to tell you what it means, and it's used in a number of places in the Scriptures. By the way, there is a teaching today um, that is an insufficient teaching on conviction that teaches that if you're a believer, you're saved in Christ, that you don't need to be convicted of sin anymore because God loves you as you are. And if He loves you as you are and you're perfect in Christ, you never have to be convicted of sin. Really? Really? And so we'll look at some scriptures that say it's not just for unbelievers. And so let's look at the first scripture, John 16, 8. And Jesus says here in John 16, 8, 
When he comes, who is he referring to here? Who is he? Okay, it's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit, he will convict. By the way, not it. Or, you know, the Holy Spirit is not some mystical fog or some divine energy field, you know. Ooh, we felt the Spirit and it was, you know. No, the Spirit is a person dwelling within us, working actually with our consciences. What is your conscience? Your conscience is, when the New Testament speaks about conscience, we are born with a conscience, this inner referee, so to speak, that, that when you, it's like when you transgress, when you do something you know is not right, morally wrong, we're born with a moral compass. And when you do something that is, you're crossing the line, so to speak, it's like that inner referee, your conscience, ah, that's wrong. And obviously we know that actually the Bible says you can harden your conscience, you can have a weak conscience, you can sear your conscience, there's different things, but what the Spirit does is the Spirit works with our consciences to basically make us feel guilty, guilty, so that we can turn towards the one who can take away our guilt. That's what the Spirit does. And in the Scripture, it actually says the Spirit comes and He will, the word convict, and what the word convict means, it means that He will prove you guilty. He'll have, in a sense, have a poke at you to show that you are guilty, and He'll he'll convict, He'll make the world guilty concerning, He'll show them concerning their sin and their righteousness, uh, or righteousness and judgment. So that's towards unbelievers. And by the way, have you had that moment? Do you remember that day? Did you ever have times when you were running away from God? I know I did, and I knew I was going, I was driving in that direction. I knew that I was, and the Lord was putting His finger on me. He was, he was kind of saying, Mike, you're guilty. You need to turn. No, I don't want to turn. It's, I don't want to give up my life. Driving in the wrong direction. Turn, turn. I don't want to turn. And the Spirit would, would, would convict me and convict me. He would prompt, prod me. Sometimes I'd meet a Christian, and even just the way that they would look would like, ah. It would just be, that would just be, ah, when I went to church, it was, it was just, there was a sense of God saying, you're guilty and you need a savior. Turn away from your old life. Interesting, I've got a friend, um, and she was in Europe, just a beautiful example of how conviction works, and she was, she had, she was backslidden, actually, run away far from God. I might have shared the story here before, run away far from the Lord, and um, she was an au pair in Europe, uh, or pairing for this family, and they had a family member that came over, he was a Christian, and family stayed for lunch, they left, and the father, who was an unbeliever, you know, spoke to afterwards, like, I can't believe these Christians, you know, they're so bigoted, and ah, yeah, I hate Christians, and she, who had run away from, effectively, her Christian family in South Africa, and just wanted to just live it up in the world, said, yeah, I also can't believe these Christians, I can't believe someone would actually believe that Jesus would die for your sins. And as those words came out of her mouth, she felt that there was a stab into her heart. And instantly, she heard a voice saying, but that, I died for your sins. I died for your sins. And she carried on with what she was doing, and she, she knew that the hound of heaven, so to speak, was after her. God was after her. She came back to South Africa a few months later, got radically born again, or recommitted her life to the Lord. I think she got probably properly born again, and started serving Christ. Our friends... That is, that is John 16, verse 8. And I want to ask you, have you experienced that? Maybe you're here tonight and, and you, you've been running from God and you know he's been, he's been prodding you, so to speak. Have you experienced that? And if you haven't, it's like God is persistent to you. Unfortunately, we harden our hearts so much that we can just eventually harden it to the point where God, you won't even sense those promptings anymore. If you're an unbeliever, that is a scary place to be. 
You know, interesting, just people often ask me, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Should I go down here? Um, yes. Okay. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You know, and I remember even for me as an unbeliever, oh, I don't want to commit the unforgivable sin. You know, the blasphemy, you know, I wasn't even saved. I just live for myself, but I was religious. You know, I don't want to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Any of you ever thought that? Even as Christians, you, you read it. Oh, it's the unforgivable sin. You know, have I committed it? Let me say, if you've asked the question, you have not committed it. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the... Co- okay, I've got to get here because it might, it might be actually helpful for some. Is the blasphemy of the Spirit, when Jesus speaks about it in the Scriptures, the context is those who were religious leaders were looking at Jesus and were accusing Jesus and what He was doing, and they were equating it to the devil. And they were saying, you are not the Son of God, you're actually of Satan. And they were basically rejecting Christ. That's what they were doing. They were rejecting the means of salvation. And so blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is where you reject Christ. And you harden your heart to such a degree that you look at Christ and you say, no, he's not the son of God. He's actually of lunacy. He's, He's a liar and he's a lunatic. When you've gone there, that's the blasphemy of the Spirit. But you know what Paul says? Paul says uh, in Timothy, he says, but I was a blasphemer and I was forgiven. Grace overflowed to me. You know that God can forgive blasphemy? Blasphemy of the Spirit takes place when you heart and you refuse to come to Christ. But if you come to Christ, you'll be saved. It's a bit like a person who's dirty and they, they know they're filthy. They haven't washed for a, a year. They haven't bathed. And you say to them, you, you really need to go into a bath. And they go, no, I don't believe in baths. What are they doing? They're rejecting the means to make them clean. And that's what blasphemy of the Spirit is. You're cutting off Christ. But you know, God is so merciful. It's not like He says, ah, you did it. I can't forgive you now. Sorry. No, but it's where you you remove ourselves. And so a Christian cannot commit the blasphemy of the Spirit because you love Christ. You're following Christ. If you say, but I'm not sure, put your faith in Christ. Then you won't. It's as simple as that. So anyway, I, I just wanted to mention that because maybe there's a bit of unhelpful fear around that often. But not only that, with unbelievers, actually with believers, the New Testament says that for Christians experience conviction. But interesting, the, the verses don't use that word convict. It uses another, same Greek word, but it uses the word correct or approve. And it says that once you're now a Christian, actually what happens is God begins to uh, although it is conviction, but he actually corrects you and he reproves you. You've got scriptures like this, Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not lightly regard, do not, uh, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. That's the word, convict or reprove. In other words, that as a believer, God will prod you. God will say, my son or my daughter, there's this thing that you're doing that doesn't please me, and I want you to turn from it so you can again um, find forgiveness in my name, in Christ. Um, you know, I find that we can harden our hearts up to actually not being open to being convicted or receive the, the prodding or the, the highlighting of sin in our lives by the Spirit. Hebrews 3 actually says that, um, that we must be careful not to harden our hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. And I find, you know, sin by nature, as we justify it, don't we? You know, ah, well, you know, like James was saying earlier, and I so appreciated his honesty, and his, and James, thank you, we just really, you know, that's what I actually love by being part of Josh Jane, we've been 
I've journeyed it with Josh and for many, many years, and we deal, we take this stuff seriously. We, we don't sweep it under the rug and you wonder, oh, where has that leader gone? You know, we haven't seen him for three months. Oh, well, he committed some sin, you know, we can't talk about it. No, you know, if he's public ministry, we deal with it in a public way. And I love the fact that, that James even just freely was just so open and coming to it. But what happens is we begin to justify behavior and we begin to think, oh, well, God doesn't really mind. But what we do is like, you know, I used to play guitar and I still play guitar, but when I learned how to play guitar and started playing on the, um, the strings, the key with playing an instrument, especially guitar, with putting your fingers on those steel strings, particularly, or the nylon strings, is to grow in it, you've got to develop calluses on your fingers. Your fingers have to get hardened where effectively your fingers ignore the pain, where no longer do they feel the pain. And I find when the Lord, when we harden our hearts, you know, for example, maybe you've lowered the standard in your holiness with what you should be watching. And maybe like the first time you watch something, you know, like, ah, that series, but you kind of just do it anyway. You ignore the pain. You ignore the the prodding of the spirit, the, the reproof of the spirit, but you continue anyway. And over time, we can actually harden our hearts to the point where in that area, it's like we can love the Lord, you know, you can come to, you can pray in tongues, you can raise your hands, but in that area, there's actually a deception and there's a hardening of the heart that can come in. That, that is scary. I, I, I remember, um, for me personally, just some of the sins I've had to battle with over the years. One has been anger. And um, as a young Christian, I was a young, young believer in the Lord. And I used to have a terrible temper on the sports field. Terrible. Especially when I played golf. Um, <laughs> yeah, someone once said, golf is a good walk ruined. If you want to ruin a good walk, go play golf. And, uh, and I had a terrible temper. I would throw my clubs down the fairway. I would swear. And I would go to church in the morning. Uh, I was 19 years old. I would worship the Lord. I, was, I loved Him. And then I would go onto the golf course, and I would swear, and I would lose my testimony completely with people around me. And I remember, I was like, but I kind of, oh, well, that's different, you know. That's, that's the sport. And I justified it. But I knew that it wasn't wrong. Eventually, I realized, actually, to stop sinning, I actually had to stop playing the sport. I gave my clubs away because it was causing me to sin. I've had to deal with that over the years. Having children, um, one of the things that the Lord has been highlighted, especially when I was with young kids, is that I had a terrible temper with my kids when I was younger. I would would just get frustrated, and I would speak to them in a tone that was just so unchristlike. I remember when my daughter was small, my firstborn, Michaela, she was this beautiful little baby girl, you know, we'd pick her up. She was so cute. She was like, oh, but she was like a little monster <laughs> because she would never sleep. And she was all cute in the day and I would want to hold her, you know, oh, daddy's got you, my girl, you know. But when we put her to sleep at night, something awoke. <laughs> and she just didn't sleep ever. She didn't like to sleep to the point where I remember having to work the next day. We, between my wife and I, we, were just, we had no sleep. By the way, sleep deprivation is a form of torture. Parents know this, right? And it was terrible. And I remember feeling so frustrated the, the one night. And I thought I'd dealt with anger. And I remember the one night, um, I, I was holding and she wouldn't go to sleep. And finally, I put her down. Uh, and I had to rock her and hold her for like half an hour. I was still learning as a parent, so we did a lot wrong. Put her down, walked out the room. And as I did, I, I stepped on one of her squeaky toys. And she woke up again. And I just lost it. I just remember swear words coming out of my mouth, just cursing. I was like, where does this come from? 
And I was an elder in the church at that point. I was just like in the... <laughs> yes, I know. Who whistled? <laughs> you, you cast the first stone. <laughs> and, and my friends, it was just like I realized that the Spirit, but I justified it. I'd like, ah, oh, no, it's just because I'm, you know, I just haven't had enough sleep. That's why I'm not godly, you know. And it's like, you don't understand. If I just had more sleep, then I'd be Christ-like. And the Lord used those times as precious situations to bring out things in me. There were cracks. There were things that wasn't godly. And I was like, Lord, I had to bring it before him. I had to let the Lord pierce me to, to not ignore the pain. So that's the first thing is I want to ask you, do you allow? And by the way, you know, when the word convict for Christians is used, it's used, as I mentioned there, it's used in Titus and in Timothy when it comes to the preaching of the word. And it mentions actually that the preaching of the word brings reproof or correction, conviction. I want to say that one of the signs that the Spirit convicts believers today is when you sit under the word of God. And when you feel that, that, that ouch, you know, ouch and amen, you know, yes, I love that. Ah, why do you have to say that, you know? If you ignore that, if you walk out of this place and you ignore that sense, ah, oh, you've missed the Spirit working, Spirit prompting. By the way, what's the difference in the Spirit giving you a sense of guilt or conviction and the devil? And again, we don't have time to actually get into all of this, but if you're not sure and you're saying, I feel like guilty of something, go to one of your leaders and ask them, is this the devil? Is this the Lord? What I find is the devil will accuse you of not even being a child of God. The devil, this is if you're a Christian, saying, actually, you're not even worthy to be a child of God. But like James experienced in the forest, like, I feel so much shame, I can't even come to the presence of God. That is not the Spirit. The Spirit will often highlight specific areas because He wants you to change specifically. That's the way that I find that He works. But sometimes He'll give me a sense of guilt. Isn't God good? The second thing want to mention is confession. So the first one is that when we turn, this process of turning involves conviction. The second one is confession. Confession. And let's look at a couple of scriptures. One is Psalm 32 verse 5. Um, and this is confession to God. I love this. David, Psalm 32 5. In the, I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. Finally, I confessed, what does it say? Say all. All my sins to you. And I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And this is beautiful. That's the gospel, isn't it? This good news that when you confess to God, you really do, all of it, there's this wonderful thing called forgiveness. It really works. And there's real forgiveness where you are really washed clean. And if there's some of you that struggle with shame here today, and a sense of like you've done stuff in the past and that shame is following you, we've all experienced that in some measure. I want to say you have to contend that shame is no inheritance, but shame is no birthright for a child of God. There's no place for it. It's like, God, it's taken away the guilt and what's attached to that guilt, it's taken away. But interesting, you know, we often, so I came out of a Catholic background, I think I've shared with you before, but being Catholic, um, we would go and confess our sins, not just to God, but we went to confess our sins to the priest. And when we did so, because that's what we did, we went to the confessional booth. And so growing up, you know, I 
that's the actual way I, I, I thought it was. You, could, you bring it to the priest, he was our mediator. And, uh, you know, and when I got saved, I realized, like, whoa, I've done it all wrong. I need to go God, to God. He's my mediator. He's the priest that I go to, to the Father to receive forgiveness. But I had gone so far that I forgot that actually Scripture says we should confess to one another. And, you know, there's interesting Scripture um, in James chapter 5. And I want to say that confession is not just to God, but it actually has to be also to one another. Not to receive forgiveness in the same way but to receive some type of forgiveness in our relationships, which actually kind of is the oil of our relationships, lubricates it. Funny enough, when one of the things in the Catholic Church we used to do is when you went to the confessional booth, how many of you are coming of that background where you had to confess your sins to a priest? Any of you here? No one. Am I the only one? Oh, I see that hand. So, and I would go into the, the confessional booth. Now, if you've gone to the movies, you would, you, you would know that there's your little booth, and then you turn around, and there would be this mesh, and then you, you have this shadowy figure on the other side, you know, my son, you know, yes, father, you know, tell me your sins. And then it's all anonymous in the movies. But in real life, I would, we'd, we'd go, and the priest would be here, and he would say, come sit right next to me, my boy, and I have to sit right next to the priest. And so I would turn to him, he'd look me in the eye, and that's how we would do confession. And so what we would do is if you, now they believed in confession to God, so I don't want to stereotype um, uh, the Catholics, but what happened was that if you, as part of your confession to the Lord and finding forgiveness, is you would need to say certain types of prayers to God. And so there were prayers called the Our Father prayers, where you'd repeat the Our Father, you know, Our Father that art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. You know, the prayer of Jesus uh, given to us to learn how to pray. So if you kind of had done bad things, you'd say, well, I want you to say, for example, three Our Fathers. And you repeat that. You go and sit in the pew, and you just pray that prayer three times, and that's kind of an absolving of your sins. But then, if you had done really bad sins, you would be given Hail Marys. And the Hail Mary was also a prayer not found in the Bible. And the Hail Mary was a prayer that was kind of offered up to Mary, who was a, a go-between, so to speak, between uh, you know, and so the prayer would go something like this, Hail Mary, Mother of God. I can't believe I'm saying this prayer in Josh Jen. Hail Mary, Mother of God. Don't repeat it. Hail Mary, Mother of God. Um, you know, um, oh, I've gone blank. I, I did it perfectly this morning. Hail Mary, Mother of... Do you remember it? Hail Mary... Ma Why don't you say it? What is this? How's it go? For the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God... Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Yeah, amen. That was the prayer, right? And, uh, and then if you're really bad, you would say, for example, four Hail Marys. Or, you know, it depends on the level of how much sin you've committed and how honest you were to the priest, which I wasn't very honest often, but I would like in bits and pieces tell him my sins. So I had a twin brother, and so we would both go to confession one after the other. And sometimes you could sit, and if you really leant back on the back pew, you could hear the, the sins going in. But most of the time, we try to sit there and not actually hear the person confessing, because the door wasn't always closed. But anyway, it would carry on, and then we would give, be given our punishment, so to speak, and we'd say these prayers, and afterwards, we'd, we'd get in the car, and my brother would say to me, so, so what did you get? You know? How many, how many Hail Marys did you get? I got three. What? Three? What did you do? I'm not telling. <laughs> I only got one. 
you got three. What have you been doing? You know, no, no, no I'm not going to say. And, and so th that's how we grew up. We grew up in that kind of environment. So I had a warped, and so when getting saved, I was like, I ain't confessing sin to nobody. I'm going to my heavenly priest, to Christ, the one that hears me all the times. So I don't have to book an appointment. He's available 24-7, and he is good, and he will forgive me when I come with all of my heart to the Lord. Amen. That's the good news. But I didn't read these scriptures like John, uh, James 5, 16, that says, let's read it. Later on, I realized I had to develop a theology for this. James 5, is that up there? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I find that as I've grown in the Lord, I've realized that a part of my faith that was missing was confession to my brothers and sisters. And so I have people in my life, I don't get it right always perfectly, that I'm open to and I actually share those areas with. I share my weaknesses, I share my sins, I share the areas that no one else knows about, I'll share with them of how I'm doing, how I'm doing in my marriage, how I'm doing as a father and as a husband, because I, I need to humble myself and come under the hand of God. Someone once said, it's the unshared areas of our lives where Jesus is not Lord. It's the unshared areas of our lives where Jesus is not Lord. And somehow it's like we can, we can somehow compartmentalize where we so harden our hearts in an area and we don't even realize that we've done so and yet we think we can carry on and we wonder why we aren't growing in God. Sometimes, you know, it's interesting, James 5 says that effectively healing comes when you learn how to confess. And some of you are not experiencing healing because you're not confessing. You're not learning how to be open and vulnerable. And it's a scary thing, right? It's not easy. Now, you don't have to do like some of the leaders do. It's coming up to the front of the church. That's extreme. That's rare. You don't have to do that. But we should have people in our lives who, you know, that who love you as you are, warts and all. Um, I remember Andrew telling a story. Can I share more stories? I'm going on a bit long, but where Andrew told the story when they were newly married, they'd been married about a year or two, and they had a very volatile um, marriage. Um, many of you have heard this starting point videos. Very volatile, broken. She was broken, he was selfish, and it was just this terrible mix of oil and water. They just could not get along. And um, they were part of then, they'd moved churches, they were part of a church where they kind of kept at arm's length. They got involved. But their marriage was really a mess, to the point where they would drive to church on a Sunday morning, fighting and arguing and shouting at each other, you know, just built up frustration and offense. And they would get to church, get out the car, and they would pretend that everything was fine. They'd put on their little Christian face, a little happy smile. They'd even hold hands, and Andrew said, they're walking to church, praise God, you know. They'd raise their hands. They would even come to the front. But inside, their marriage was, it was broken. And that there were leaders in the church that saw that, loved them enough to say, there's something wrong here. In fact, it was in worship, he shares, about one of the elders' wives, a little Greek lady. I know, Helen Ross. And a feisty, feisty Greek lady and, and who stood to Andrew, he was a little, little lady. My son, what did she say to him? Something to that effect. I can see right through you. I know. In worship, she stood up to him. You, are, you, can't, think you, you can't deceive me. I know that you, you've been fighting. Come outside now. We're going to sort this out. And she dragged them outside during worship because she had had enough. Thank God for a church like that. 
right? Like, wouldn't you want to be a part of a church that loves you enough to like, you know, you know, the wounds of a friend, Scripture says? Don't you, isn't it terrible when you've got people speaking and, you know, behind your back? Don't you want to be part of a church where they love you, warts and all, where you can be yourself? And, you know, we, each of us have this big sign in a sense. I've got a big sign on my head, and it says, under construction. Yes, I'm loved by God. I'm perfect in Christ. But God has to work under the, under the robe of righteousness, so to speak. There's a lot in me that I know I have to keep growing in, in the Lord. I need confession. I need these things. So if you want to experience confession, you've got to own it. And it's part of turning away and turning towards the Lord. And you know, the thing is that we drift. Hebrews 2 speaks about these early Christians that lost sight of Christ and they began to drift. You ever drift? I've drifted. I've got to turn back to Christ. I've got to turn back. Part of my turning back to Christ is to come to Him. But sometimes freedom means I've got to go to my brothers. I've got to go to that love. I say, I'm struggling in this area. Please, would you pray for me? I, I can't do this on my own. And I know I need it too. I want to read one more scripture. And then we're going to land. Acts 19, 18 to 20. And... Um, this is another scripture on confession. It's a, such an interesting scripture. This is set in, uh, I think it was Ephesus, where the gospel had been preached in, Eph I think it's Ephesus. I'm just get that. Anyway, it's one of the times, I'm pretty sure it's Ephesus, where the gospel had been preached. And in that specific town, there was the practice of witchcraft and magic. It was just, that was the, the thing that was just in, in that specific place. And as people got saved, it says many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What do we learn from this? That when there's confession there's often cost that comes with confession. There's a cost. I know when, like, I know it's a silly example, but when I was playing sports, especially golf, I didn't want to give it up. I, I liked it. I liked, I liked that. I, I didn't want to give it up. And I remember having to, like, confess and bring it out and say, actually, I, I'm, I'm not, and by the way, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, that if you are angry in your heart, you're actually a murderer. Or you are uh, uh, someone who lusts, which we all have done, he says, you're actually an adulterer. And something I've had to learn over the years is that when you're confessing your sin, you've got to name it. You've got to say it. You can't just say, Lord, well, you know, I, I, was, I was a bit lustful this week. Would you forgive me? Actually, according to Matthew 5, it's a sense of I am like an adulterer. It's as if I've committed adultery, as if I've slept with someone that's not my wife or my husband. That's what, and I've got to name it. And it's like, oh, God, please help me. And I think sometimes we, we, we're too friendly with sin. It's like we domesticate it. You know, there's a thing in the States where people domesticate animals, wild animals. You see these movie stars with these pet tigers, you know, and he's kind of sitting with these five gold chains by his pool, and he's got his tiger around them. Are you crazy? That thing will maul you. They're not meant to be pets. And I think we do that with our sin, we domesticate it. We, and, but actually what they did there is they brought it out. They were so radical with their confession that they burned their magic books. And so I want to ask you that there's a cost, my friends, there's a cost 
to confession, divulging it, bringing it out to say, this is where I am. But with it comes freedom and grace. And that leads to number three, transformation. The goal of conviction and confession is that God leads us to change. And true change only takes place when we've actually allowed the Lord to process that well. You can't, you've got to own it. And that's when we find we grow in the Lord. When we really begin, begin to grow into maturity is when we go on that process. And I want to end with a scripture in Philippians 3, 12 to 15. I want to end with this. Paul's writing, and I love this. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect. Interesting, eh? He says, I'm not perfect. I'm under construction, so to speak. I've cried, but he says this, but Christ, because, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, this is the one thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize. And what's the prize? What's the goal? This is it. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think that way. So what, how do we grow into maturity? You are, have a relentless pursuit of Christ, turning towards Him, turning away. I'm not that I'm, 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 I'm living in the past. I'm turning towards it. I'm not living in shame. I'm not living in guilt. I'm not living in addiction. I'm not living in pain. I'm not living in unforgiveness. I'm not living in offense. I'm, I'm leaving those things because Christ has laid hold of me and I will pursue him to the point of it's a relentless pursuit of Christ. And we grow up into maturity. Those who are mature think this way. And transformation takes place. You look back over a year or two and you say, but I've grown. I'm not the man I used to be. I'm not the, the woman I used to be. I have changed. I want to say today, my, I, I still get tested on this. But I'm not the same man that I was 15, 20, 10 years ago. The way that I got angry with my kids. I still have to watch it, but I'm not that man anymore. Because I've allowed the Lord to come. My friends, in light of what we've heard tonight, we want to give an opportunity for us to respond to the Lord. And um, I'd like us to pray together. So, let's pray.